This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The 1st of May usually carries the promise of warmer days and time outdoors. On this May Day, the pandemic that began to grip the nation on the Ides of March is leaving the country apprehensive, even angry. The workers who prepare our food, operate mass transit, and deliver packages are rallying, saying they're not being well protected. The states make a confusing roadmap of what's permissible. Kids can play basketball again in Idaho, but not in New York. You can get a haircut in Georgia, but not until later this month in Connecticut. In Michigan, armed demonstrators stormed the legislature, protesting stay-at-home orders. And for many, the rent is due. Austin Goolsby, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Obama administration and an ABC News contributor, joins us now from the University of Chicago. The first of the month is daunting for so many who need to pay rent or maybe one of the 30 million who's filed for unemployment during a crisis, Austin, that required many of us to stay home. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a very tough spot, probably the worst four weeks in the history of the U.S. job market. We've got to keep our fingers crossed and do everything we can to make this different from a normal recession. Does the fact that the recession appears to have been triggered or at least exacerbated by a virus make the recovery any different? We certainly hope so. In a normal recovery, the unemployment rate can only come down one to one and a half percentage points a year. If the forecasters are right, the unemployment rate just this month might jump into 15, 16 percent or or even more. So if it follows the normal rules, we could be 10 years before we're back to something like uh, where we were before this whole thing started. So we what we want is for it not to follow the normal rules. And there is the possibility that it does that. If we get control of the spread of the virus, I think you could see the unemployment rate come back down. If you waved a magic wand and had a vaccine next week, I think the economy could go right back to where it was before this whole thing started. And in a way, the good news is that there are multiple countries now who have gotten themselves out of lockdown. What these countries, Korea, Germany, Taiwan, now about to be Australia and New Zealand. What they did is they did enough testing that the only people that have to sit on the sidelines are the ones who are sick, that we can argue all we want about should they open or should we not open. That is not the, that's not the choice of any political leader because that is driven by everyday Americans' fear that if they go out of their house, they're going to bump into somebody Who's going to give them the virus and, and that person who has it doesn't know that they have it. I wanted to ask you about that. Does a state reopening at 25 percent or, or whatever the, the number is, th- does that actually help anything or, or is that more trouble than it's worth? It's certainly more trouble than it's worth if you don't have testing and you don't have good control of the virus. Uh, the thing that's that's odd about it is it's kind of descended into this political food fight, they issued a guidelines. You can see the White House wants to get people back out and try to improve the economy. So they issued guidelines. When should we, uh, when should we look to reopen? And those guidelines had 
a sensible approach, which is base it on the testing. Let's see the deaths coming down. Let's we see the rate of spread of the virus low and falling. But several of the states that are acting now are not in compliance with the with those guidelines. Yeah, in fact, all but one of the 16 states easing restrictions today do not appear to be adhering to the White House guidelines. Austin Goolsby at the University of Chicago. Georgia has allowed salons to operate for about a week now, and we wanted to see how that's going. Tony Riley is the owner of Riley's Salon in Dunwoody. How's it going? Uh, it's been going well. We're doing a, a limited number of people with a limited number of stylists in this first week. Feel it out a little bit. Yeah, uh, it takes some practice, you know, going through everything, learning how you're going to go through each service and make sure that everything is done as best we can. You're in the line of work where social distancing is nearly impossible. How have you been able to mitigate that? Uh, well, uh, they're covered in smocks. We're covered in smocks. Uh, we've got masks on, gloves. Has everyone felt comfortable? Your employees feeling good? Your customers feeling good? Yeah, everybody's felt uh, really comfortable. And that's was our, that was our main goal, is to come back. And we only brought in a few stylists just to start with, just to make sure that everybody felt comfortable with it. And the clients have felt comfortable. They've all Everybody uh, was it was definitely ready to get their 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 color and their cuts done for sure. I bet the rest of us are on a march toward a mullet. Tony Riley in Atlanta, our thanks to you. There are jobs that are unavoidable in this crisis, like Sandra Johnson's. Her funeral home in Queens usually handles ten burials a month. She finished April, completing her sixty seventh. How glad are you? April's over, Sandra. Oh my lord. <laughs> I don't even know how to begin that. Um, it has been a whirlwind. It has been a, a time that I've never, ever, ever seen before and pray I don't see again. Sandra, we've all heard this story of the funeral home in Brooklyn where corpses were left to decompose in unrefrigerated rental trucks. How bad is this for funeral homes? It's been really tough. So we're talking about the physical aspect, the increase, the volume. We are working day in, day out, day in, day out. I leave the office, come home, get on the laptop, try to return phone calls. So the 67 people that I served doesn't represent the 80, 90 people who called that I couldn't get to, that I can't serve. I have no, there's no space, there's no time, there's no room. We're just building, building, building backlog. And these are people's family members. So from the emotional aspect, it's a nightmare. There have been some days, and I'm telling you, if I was not a praying person, I would have lost my mind. I felt so bad not being able to serve the people. And it literally, I'm telling you, it broke my heart. How do you tell somebody, I'm sorry, I'm over capacity at a funeral home. I can't take anymore. It's something that we've never said before. It's too much to handle. It's too much. It's too much. Sandra Johnson, just one of many funeral home directors overwhelmed with coronavirus death. There are other jobs that are inescapable in this pandemic. In New York City, mass transit is still running, even though ridership is way down. Starting next week, the subway, for the first time, will stop running 24 hours a day. For four hours overnight, they'll clean and disinfect and remove those experiencing homelessness from stations, like the one our next guest works in every day. 
He asked that we not use his name, but you can tell us what it's like in those subway stations. It's it's been challenging. It's it's definitely been a a, a shock to the system, so to speak. You know, we're, we're experiencing low ridership, uh, which is pretty obvious. But uh, apart from that, what we're seeing is a surge in homelessness as well. Being in the stations every day, not only are we seeing more homeless people in the stations, uh, we're also seeing uh, more homeless people like, you know, kind of turning train cars themselves into like their own personal shelters. So you see a lot of uh, property, you know, people sleeping everywhere, a lot of mess, more, you know, unsanitary condition within these cars of late than I would say I've seen over the years. Have you felt? safe? Have you felt secured just going about your job? Um, thankfully, the position that I'm in um, keeps me in one place. And um, the MTA has provided us uh, with basic cleaning equipment, you know, like like bleach water, uh, hand sanitizer and things like that. So I'm not uh, as much on the front lines as um, some of my coworkers out there. I mean, you're still going down there every day, which you know, is essential. Have you known any of the 98 MTA workers that have died of coronavirus? Uh, there was a cleaner, yes, that passed away, uh, who I was familiar with. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Unfortunate and a cautionary tale to every city trying to keep its workforce safe while providing a public service. Our thanks to that MTA employee who did not want us to use his name. In addition to the 98 transit employees who have died of coronavirus, more than 2,000 have tested positive. And coming up, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, our chief medical correspondent, is telling us what the medical community continues to learn about COVID-19. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me now is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. Dr. Jen, a lot of people wondering about the change of seasons, yep. the warmer temperatures. What do we know about it and its connection to the virus? Well, still, we have to remember that no one has a crystal ball. But if you look back on history and the relationship between climates, temperature and respiratory viruses, here's what we know thus far. Number one, we have to remember in terms of just basic geography, when it is summer here, it is winter in the southern hemisphere. So we have to really think globally here. We also also know that flu tends to spike in Europe and the U.S. in the winter and then decline in the spring. So there is some seasonality there. And then a study out of 2013 that was published from the NIH showed that, interestingly, warm winters, when they're warmer than normal, can lead to earlier and more severe flu season the following year. So there is some connection. And we, there. we had a warmer winter here in this yeah. area, at least. All right. There are also theories that scientists are studying that connect climate change and disease. And there is a lot being written about this, Amy. Again, we have to think not just beyond our species, but the entire climate. So right now, there may be a link between respiratory viruses and the warming planet in, in general. In mice, of course, we look at animals first. Immune systems are at higher temperatures in mice actually show they're less effective at fighting viruses mm. like the flu. So there's a connection there. And there may, we have to underscore, may be a relationship between climate change 
our behavior, human behavior, and immunity. So all things that are being looked at right now. All right, so what do we still need to learn? In terms of research, we do not know what will happen with COVID-19 or this novel strain of coronavirus as the temperatures get warmer here in the U.S. No one has a crystal ball to predict that. So we also don't know how long this virus, the particles, the fomites survive in different temperatures, in different humidity, and with more sunlight. So all things that we will be looking at in real time as we go into the summer here. All right. And I know you'll be with us yep. through it all. Also later on in the show to answer questions. We turn now to ABC's Kira Phillips, who is standing by in Washington with all of the latest headlines for us. As restrictions begin to lift across at least 30 states, a new poll indicates Americans are uneasy about returning to normal as restrictions start to loosen. The ABC News Ipsos poll showing only 20 percent of us would now be willing to attend a stadium event. 22% of us to a bowling alley, and just 21% would venture into a bar. And an update on a story that we brought you earlier this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issuing new guidance when it comes to unemployment benefits. He's saying that Texas workers with employers getting back up and running can refuse to return to work and continue to collect unemployment provided they have a, quote, valid reason, such as a high health risk or a lack of child care. Thank you, Kira. And while New York City has been the epicenter of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, Brooklyn has now emerged as the deadliest county for COVID in the United States, leaving many people looking for answers and for hope. Here to give us some of those answers is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Eric, thanks for being with us and making headlines this week in Brooklyn. And this is a tough headline. Neighbors found those unrefrigerated trucks in front of a funeral home containing decaying bodies of COVID-19 victims. We heard from New York City Mayor de Blasio calling it completely unacceptable. What is the city doing to prevent this from happening again? Uh, thank you. And I think what's unacceptable is our response to COVID-19 across not only New York City and here in Brooklyn and across the entire country is the fact that the heart of this is our inability to uh, manage assets and deploy resources to areas that are in need. We should have brought together every aspect of the bereavement process and stated that we're going to have a large number of bodies. Let's make sure our cemeteries, our funeral directors, our morgues, our chief medical examiners, and our religious institutions are part of this process so they can be a smooth transition to ensure that people can have a respectable, respectable burial. We did not do that uh, on Monday. I'm going to bring together the various aspects of the bereavement process to try to map this out. And I'm sure that will be a relief to so many. And I know you have been very vocal about the need to focus on prevention, not just intervention. How will you do that and how do you think it'll help? Uh, it's so important. Uh, what we did in this city and in this country, I believe the data is going to show, we divided the country into two categories, and particularly in New York City and New York State. We created this category of essential and non-essential employees. For non-essential employees, we created what was called a process of prevention as well as intervention. We told people to shelter in place. We told that they should do social distancing, and we also gave, gave face covering. For the essential employees, we had no plan. 
They couldn't shelter in place based on the nature of their jobs. We did not give them face coverings. When I was giving them face covering uh, almost four weeks ago, uh, many of them were threatened not to wear face coverings. And even the MTA had a stockpile of face coverings and did not give it to their employees until after 80 deaths. So what we are starting to do in the city and state is following what we're doing in Brooklyn. We're going into these hard hit areas and we're giving them number one information and not speaking in an echo chamber uh, that people speak in different languages and receive information differently. And we're giving face masks out. Now the city has joined us like other states or cities were doing previously. We have to prevent the spread of COVID-19 not only intercede when someone gets COVID-19. That was a big mistake, and we're seeing the outcome of that now. You say the community is coming together to help. Many restaurants making sure the doctors and nurses there on the front lines are being fed, and you want to help them out now with the HERO grant. Tell me about it. I've teamed up with a great, uh, not only an actor, but a great uh, humanitarian, uh, Jeffrey Wright. Uh, We created a resource for restaurants allowing them to stay open, but at the same time, we are feeding our first responders, and it's the partnership that we created through a GoFundMe page, which has really received a large number of response for a large number of people who formerly lived in Brooklyn, and they are now part of the entertainment industry, and we're able to use those restaurants so they can keep their employees in place. And at the same time, we're able to feed our first responders. It's a great partnership, and we're hoping that it's duplicated across the entire country. Yeah, that would be wonderful indeed. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, thank you for all that you're doing, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Now to the innovations by a New England entrepreneur that helped her craft twice the sales in the first quarter despite this pandemic. Today, small business strong success story. Hi, I'm Laura Lanzi from Danvers, Massachusetts, and I'm the owner of Wicked Rustic Workshops. Wicked Rustic Workshops was started in 2016. Our workshops focused on creating rustic farmhouse style, custom wood projects through a staining, stenciling, and painting process. Given the current reality of social distancing and restaurants temporarily closing, my business came to a halt. This has been incredibly scary. Right away, we had financial worries. My business has always been supplemental income, but with my husband's employer being directly impacted by COVID-19, our household income has been dramatically impacted. So we had to think of other ways we could be creative and adaptive. As the current situation developed and we canceled upcoming workshops, I sat home with my kids looking for somebody to keep them occupied in a dawn on me. I could put together a simple and affordable craft in my DIY store. The idea took off right away and I sold over 100 in the first week. We are now offering over 30 different DIY designs for children in addition to everything else in our store. I honestly don't know if my business will ever return to doing workshops and parties to the extent we did previously. The Hearts for Healthcare initiative is a way to give back to our healthcare workers. I wanted to create a project that would recognize and benefit all first responders and medical staff on the front lines. Every purchase is a buy one get one free and a portion of each sale is going towards supporting local small businesses through gift cards and catering purchases to benefit local healthcare workers and first responders. Despite these challenges, I'm beyond thankful that I've had the opportunities to grow my business. I hope to continue to be creative and innovative to meet the needs of my customers and help support our community through simple, creative projects. 
What a great story. I want to thank Laura for that and certainly wish her wicked rustic workshops continued success. Well, there is much more ahead on what you need to know. It is Faith Friday here. We have the military chaplain who says working in the COVID-19 crisis is not all that different than working in a war zone. Joining us next on the joys and heartbreak of helping others through it all. Stay with us. This ABC News special continues after this. Listening to an ABC News special, COVID 19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Dr. Jen, joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. When people who have been diagnosed with COVID 19 pass away, can their organs still be harvested for transplantation? Well, this is a really important issue because we know how important organ transplantation is in this country. So many people on a list waiting for an organ. When you talk about solid organ donation, remember that is done before the patient is technically dead. They're, they might be brain dead, obviously, but um, and in, right now in the world of transplantation, it is really unknown what the risk of transplantation with a solid organ is with respect to COVID-19. Obviously, if someone has tested positive, many transplant surgeons will consider that, mm. you know, a, a negative. But um, this is something that is definitely evolving, and we are seeing major delays for people waiting for transplantation. Right. So, it's, so many, yeah. so many parts of the medical world affected yeah, by this. Absolutely. All right. Next question: In testing for COVID-19, what is the difference between specificity and sensitivity? And why does each matter? This must be a question from an epidemiologist because <laughs> this is literally at the core of testing. Any test has a sensitivity and a specificity. Sensitivity, you can remember with the initials PID. It's positive in disease. So that's really looking for the true positives. Specificity is negative in health. So that's looking for the true negatives. When you talk about antibody testing, depending on what these numbers are, you may get a result that is 50-50 likelihood of being false. That is why we have to proceed with caution until we know the accuracy, the specificity, and sensitivity sensitivity of any test we do in medicine. You're right. I wouldn't even know to ask that question. It's so, so important. Definitely had to come from somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question three. Are bad sweats at night a possible sign of COVID-19? So everyone's looking for, are there more signs or symptoms? Sign in medicine is something you can see. A symptom is something you feel. Right now, there's no direct association or correlation between sweating being a symptom of COVID-19, nor is there any evidence that the virus is transmitted in perspiration mm. or sweat. However, something related to sweating, chills or shaking chills, those are new symptoms just added to the CDC list uh, for symptoms of COVID-19. Okay, next question. Are pediatricians starting to do vaccines at vehicles? I am concerned about taking my young child into the office. That's very understandable. It is understandable. And pediatricians are concerned that patients out of fear, their parents really, will not be bringing those children for their routine immunizations or their well-child checkups. So I think you're going to start to see a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity, 
creativity and finding solutions for this where maybe if the weather permits and the staffing resources are there at various pediatricians' offices or clinics, they can do those um, car-side immunizations. But again, we are in the beginning of this, so how this all evolves uh, will be seen. It'll be interesting. Right. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you so much. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, it is Faith Friday here at ABC, and the impacts of COVID-19 continue to be felt across the nation. Joining me now to talk about serving on the front lines of this pandemic is Anglican priest and chaplain for the Massachusetts National Guard, James Hairston. Chaplain Hairston, thank you so much for being with us today. We certainly appreciate this. And we should mention you're a veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom. So having completed that tour of active duty in Afghanistan, Tell us about your work at the Holyoke Soldiers Home. Unfortunately, more than 70 veterans there tested positive for the virus have passed away. That has to be such an incredible, incredibly difficult work. I would say it's not without its challenges. I mean, the Holyoke um, Soldiers Home is under the auspice of the Massachusetts um, Health and Human Services. And the Massachusetts National Guard, our soldiers and airmen are there, ultimately supporting the doctors, the nurses, and the patients and their families in the administration there, providing them um, with whatever assistance they may need. And some of that may be prayer, some of that may be spiritual uplift, and ultimately just trying to serve and Mm -hmm. be able to connect with them and help them throughout the course of this crisis. Yeah, and as you say, challenging. This has been especially challenging because you're working there as a minister in these times of social distancing. You can't gather or necessarily even be near someone to counsel them. How have you adapted to that? We've utilized technology. When it comes to soldiers, or excuse me, when it comes to veterans who may be towards the end of their life, uh, we've used um, iPads, we use iPhones, and put on speakerphone ultimately to have um, faith leaders be able to Skype in. And for those of us who are on the ground, who are of the same faith tradition of the the patients who are there, uh, we would stand outside their doors and provide ministry that way. Let it be through prayer, let it be through uh, sharing a scripture, whatever their faith tradition is, be able to serve them in in that particular way. Because within the chaplain corps, our job is to perform and provide, is to perform the tenets of our faith and provide the resource to do so. Um, so, for instance, we had a Jewish, we had a Jewish um, veteran there, and none of the chaplains on the staff were Jewish. However, we were able to utilize our resources and call in our former state chaplain, Chaplain Rabbi Basil, to be able to call in and put him on speakerphone for him to be able to pray with the um, with the patient at the same time, uh, pray with the daughter of that patient as well. So, just being able to provide that sense of comfort and a sense of hope. Um, is our mission as chaplains. Yeah, and, you know, we've been calling this our Faith Fridays, and I'm hoping, Chaplain, that you can give us a message of hope as we head into the weekend and begin this new month of May. Yes, ma'am. The first thing I would say is make sure that you look for God and seek God through all things. It, this, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult in the times which we're in right now. However, we, are in the opportun- we have an opportunity for us to be able to connect with each other through the means of technology. It wasn't that long ago where we had paper and pencil, and that was the only way to connect. But now we do have the advent of a FaceTime, of Skype, of Zoom. Uh, recently, I was on a phone call with a church service that was all through teleconference. And although it was there were there were issues when it came to the communication with it, everyone still tuned in, everyone connected, everyone prayed with one another. And the example that I just gave with Chaplain Basil calling in, utilizing, utilizing technology. So in the midst of our social distancing and our separation, Utilizing technology and seeing God through the midst of those things is one of the things we continue to hold on to. I see God where when I walk the streets and I see soldiers and airmen continue to serve the community in the midst of in the midst of their own fears. I see God with 
the facilities workers who are cleaning the doorknobs and disinfecting the areas after we leave. I see God and the sanitation worker who continues to serve. And I see God with our interagency partners who are out there working and continue to serve faithfully in the midst of their own fears. It just continue to see God in all things. And that is certainly inspirational when we open our eyes and we see. Chaplain Harrison, thank you so much for being with us. We certainly appreciate your service and your time today. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Coming up next on What You Need to Know, Mind Your Manners. Lizzie Post is here with Pandemic Etiquette, the new rules when it comes to social distancing, plus the two nurses with a song in their hearts as they stand shoulder to shoulder with fellow healthcare workers in the fight of their lives. We'll be right back. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back, everyone. With new social norms such as wearing masks, staying six feet apart, we could all use a little advice on manners during this coronavirus pandemic. And here with more on the evolving etiquette from the Emily Post Institute is Lizzie Post. So, Lizzie, thanks for being with us. I want to start off with supermarket etiquette. What are the rules we should be following? Well, we really want to be following whatever the rules or supermarkets are setting. So whether that's following a directional path up and down the aisles, if it's wearing masks, for everyone, I believe it is still trying to keep that physical six foot distance, which I think we need a lot of practice with. But things are so different now. You're not picking up all the different produce and boxes and reading labels. You're trying to really only engage with product when you're going to select it. You're also trying to look around you, um, make sure that there's not someone waiting six feet away to get into that spot that has the item that you're looking for. We also really want to be extra courteous to the staff who are there every day there are essential workers and they're making it possible for us to purchase these items. So you don't just want to say thank you at the cash register. You want to say it to all the staff that you're seeing. What about outdoor activities? Uh, A lot of people walking their dogs, running, even riding their bikes. What are the tips you give? This is a really hard space, right? Because you're outdoors. So it, it feels like you're more protected than when you're in those smaller confined spaces. But there's been a lot of a lot of talk about still needing to maintain physical distance in these spaces. A lot of rec paths aren't actually a full 12 feet wide or six feet wide. So you're you're trying to gauge distances that we're not used to having to gauge. Get really familiar with what six feet looks like. You might even want to measure on your own paths or uh, sidewalks to see kind of really how far away do you need to move. My mom always tells me, she says, you know, put your arm out and if they put their arm out, that's about six feet between the two of you. But it's a really tough one. You need to wear that mask every time you pass somebody for sure. I can understand when you're not Uh, on a block that has anyone else on it. You want to pull it down, get that fresh air. But if you're on a bike, if you're running, if you're walking, rollerblades, skateboards, razors, whatever it is, you really want to be creating that six feet. You want to be wearing your mask. And if you're in a group, drop back to single file as you go to pass someone because it allows you to create more room. You don't end up pushing someone way off a path or into the street or into someone's yard Uh, in order to create the proper distance. Yeah, no, that is very important. I love that. This is an interesting one. I'm curious what you're going to say, because in these times, we're hearing a lot of people cheering loudly, blasting their music, playing music, and maybe they have the best of intentions. What's your thought? Is that polite or not? What are the circumstances in which it is or it isn't? 
This is a really tough one. I think it's really cool the way a lot of cities um, and towns have rallied around a specific time of day to do it as a cheer for everyone, both to lift spirits and to encourage all our essential workers. I don't want to take away from that at all, but you do want to think about it when you go and venture out on your own in hours that aren't your city's hour to do it. I think 7 p.m. is typically the, the time frame most people are aiming for. But if you're thinking about, you know, belting that concerto for your neighbor's birthday, just might want to consider what time of day you're thinking of doing it. Um, I tend to hear that around five o'clock seems to be easiest. Most people are done with their work day, so they're not going to be having a Zoom call or something that gets interrupted. But families aren't yet putting young kids down. That sort of it's like you have to find the balance in the neighborhood you live in. But you do really want to be considerate and think how much is this me participating and really giving to my community and how much is this just me blowing off steam? You want to think first. Yeah, it's all about being considerate. That pretty much sums it up. Lizzie Post, etiquette expert. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Dr. Jen joining us now. And among the many hats you wear, (laughs) medically speaking, Dr. Jen, uh, you are also a board-certified nutritionist. And there have been a lot of questions between the link of having low vitamin D and getting the coronavirus. What have we learned? Well, I think this is really important, Amy, because you know that, as Hippocrates said, food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. We're looking at associations between different nutritional sources, diet, and, of course, people are always interested in supplements. The big overriding caveat is nothing is conclusive at this time that any kind of supplement can change your risk. However, one of the leading contenders is vitamin D level because we know if you connect the dots on this, that people, for example, the elderly in nursing homes classically are deficient in vitamin D3. People with dark skin or who are obese classically deficient in vitamin D3. And what else? Those two groups hit particularly hard by COVID-19. So clinical trials have started looking at vitamin D levels, supplementation, and risk of COVID-19. Right now, remember, more is not better. You and I talk about that all the time. So don't think that if a little is good, more could be better. That is not true. But certainly this is something that people are interested in because it, it could be potentially an easy kind of add. All right, Dr. Jen. And coming up next right here, there's an old saying that when you sing, you pray twice. That's especially true for our next guests. Healthcare workers raising their voices to strengthen fellow co-workers on the front lines. We're back in a moment. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19. What you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Two nurses from New York Presbyterian Hospital singing Ain't No Mountain High Enough. The strength in the face of adversary on clear display in a bunch of viral videos where nurses are shown celebrating recoveries we're singing and dancing to bring joy to patients and staff members. So guess what? Those two nurses are joining us right now. We have from New York Presbyterian in Queens, Dawn Jones and Kim Villamer. Thank you both for being with us, ladies. And Kim, tell us about your hospital-wide Ain't No Mountain High Enough tour. Tell us how it got started. So we recently, first of all, thank you so much for having us. Mm-hmm. We recently converted our cafeteria into a medical surgical unit. And during the opening We blessed it with a prayer and a song, and we came up with Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Yeah, and Dawn, tell us why that song. Why Ain't No Mountain High Enough? 
So the song talks about um, it's like a, it's a love song between two people, and it's a love song now between us. So it's how we face our challenges, how we get through the day. That there's nothing that can get in the way of us taking care of each other. And nothing that could get in the way of us taking care of our patients. Oh, so powerful. You can really feel it and you can feel your joy when you're singing it. I want to ask, though, how are you both holding up? Kim, I'll start with you. Well, it's it's up and down. There are days when I feel defeated. There are days when I feel like, you know, the end is way too far. But we get the positive energy from one another. And our patients give us a lot of hope, too. The strength we see in our patients are tremendous and they inspire us to keep going as well. And also I find the staff caring for one another more than ever. And it's such an honor to be able to serve them through music. Dawn, how about you? I echo Kim in that it's a roller coaster. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Yesterday I came in and I think I cried five times Mm. throughout the day. Today I'm smiling. Today I feel better. I feel ready to fight again. I feel ready to support my coworkers and just be there for them to get through through the day. We are in awe of you. I just want to say that and have so much gratitude. I hope you feel that from all of us who are on the outside looking in at what you're doing. Do you have a message for nurses or essential workers who also might be having a hard time right now? What would you say to them if they're listening? I would say thank you, first off, mm-hmm. and remind them how brave they are and to connect that they're not alone and that they should continue to lean on each other to to get through this and not to give up even when the dark days come know that there's hope and know that the light is at the end of this tunnel yes i just want them to know that they're not alone we're in this together there are days when you feel you're down and it's okay it's very human to feel that way but this is why we have one another to to boost each other up and to raise each other up And so we have to remember that this will end and we will win together. We will win because of you and your efforts. Kim and Dawn, thank you both for being with us today. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.